Good morning, everyone. Morning. Did you sleep well? Some of you say yes, and some of you say no. Those of you who said no, is it because you slept on a hard floor? I don't know. It's good to see you, though, this morning. Sunday morning. Happy Sunday. You know, the good thing about having a youth conference that starts on a Friday and finishes on a Tuesday is that on Sunday morning, instead of getting ready to go home, you're not even halfway through. Amen? Amen? There's still so much to come. Workshops, morning worships, and evening worships still to come. I don't know about you, but I have been blessed already fellowshipping with you, and being here at AOY. Now, as we go through this presentation, I ask that you pray for me. Pray that God would speak through me. I also ask that you would pray for the translation team. Amen? Amen? When I preach in the United States or in England, it's not uncommon for people to come up to me afterwards and say, Pastor, I really like the sermon... Well, they don't always say that, but this is the part that they often say. Please, can you slow down? <laughs> now, that's English people or American people saying to me, who we all speak the same language, can you please slow down? Now, I'm speaking here with simultaneous translation, so please pray for me that when I get excited, I slow down. And I say to my translator, if I do get too fast, start waving vigorously in the corner. And I'll know that you're not saying hello. I want to say something um, before we start. This is... uh, I've been married for one year. Something that marriage counselors will tell you, something, is that when you get married... There's two words that you should not use in your vocabulary when you're talking husband to wife or wife to husband, especially when you're frustrated. And the two words I've heard said are these. Like if you're married and you're in an argument, you should not use the word never. For example, you never tidy up. Because... The fact is, it's probably not 100% true that someone never tidies up. Or the word that you shouldn't use is always. Where a husband says to a wife or a wife says to a husband, Ah, you always do that. And you never do that. So they say, don't use the word always. And don't use the word never in the context of being angry or frustrated at the other person. I would like to say this at the beginning of this presentation for you to bear in mind as we go throughout the whole youth conference here. And I'm going to use both these words intentionally. It is never. It is what? It is never good to delay your decision to accept Christ. 
Never. Under no circumstances is there ever a situation, under no circumstances is there ever a situation where it is better to delay than to do it right now. When the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. And the next uh, uh, sentence I will say is this. It is always, it is what? It is always the best time, sorry, the best time to accept Jesus is always the earliest time. You're thinking in your mind, accepting Christ fully into your heart, and you're thinking, maybe in six months. You're thinking in your mind of the appeal last night about one year of service, and you're thinking, hmm, maybe in three years' time. The best time when the Holy Spirit is pricking your heart to accept the conviction that's coming on you is always, always the earliest time. And I'm using those words intentionally. It is never good to delay. And it's always with God. The best time is the earliest time possible. Should we bow our heads as we open with a word of prayer? Father in heaven, Lord, as we open your word for the next few moments this morning, speak to our hearts, speak through me. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I like the theme for this conference, now is the time. Now is the time. In John chapter 7, if you turn in your Bibles there, I just want to highlight a few scriptures before we get into the bulk of the message. In John chapter 7 and verse 6 to 8. In John chapter 7 and around verses 6 to 8, we have, in fact, verses 1 to 8 really. But in John chapter 7 and around verses 6 to 8, we have a dialogue between Jesus and his brothers. Now we know... By looking at the feasts in the book of John, the various feasts that have taken place, that John chapter 7 comes after Jesus has been ministering for three years. So John 7, three years into Jesus' ministry. And the Bible says, around about in verse 1, I'm just going to summarize what he says. It says that after these things, it says, Jesus would not walk in Jewry or down in Jerusalem, Because the Jews wanted to kill him. So Jesus is up in Galilee. He's up in Galilee. And he's not going down to Jerusalem because the Jews want to kill him. And the Bible says in verse 3, His brothers therefore said to him, Depart. And I'm going to paraphrase into modern English. His brothers say to him, Depart. What are you doing here? If you really are the Messiah, why are you hiding in Galilee? northern Israel. If you are the Messiah, go down to Jerusalem. And they say in verse 4, why are you doing things in secret? If you're the Messiah, why are you hiding? You have these great things for the world and you're hiding up here in Galilee. Verse 5, for neither did his brothers or his brethren believe him. So his own brothers, they don't believe he's the Messiah and they're mocking him almost saying, you really are the Messiah? 
Why are you hiding in Galilee? If you really are the Messiah, go to Jerusalem. What does Jesus say? He says there in verse 6, Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet what? Come. Now Jesus, I believe, was a student of Bible prophecy. Jesus understood the prophecies of Daniel. And Jesus understood the 70-week prophecy his mother had taught him. And so when Jesus said, my time is not yet come, he was talking about his prophetic time. Now, I said earlier, John 7 was written after how many years of Jesus' ministry? Three years. How long did prophecy say Jesus had to minister before he was crucified? Three and a half. So in John 7, Jesus says, my time has not yet Our theme is, now is the time. John chapter 8, turn to the next book, John 8, and we'll look in verse, where are we? We look at the end of the chapter, the last verse. In John chapter 8, Jesus is there speaking, and he says in verse 58, Verily I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, to the Jews, that's blasphemy. And verse 59 says, Then took up they stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They want to kill him in John 8. I've always wondered, in, in Luke chapter 4, we'll read this another time, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he goes to the, the synagogue and he says, he, re, he opens the book of Isaiah and he basically says, I am the Messiah. In Luke chapter 4, the Bible says, They drag him and they want to kill him and stone him. And the Bible says in Luke chapter 4, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he escapes. Now, I've often wondered with these passages, and I think if the only purpose of Jesus coming down to earth was to die, then why didn't he just die at the very beginning and get it over and done with? Luke 4, beginning of ministry, just die. Why didn't he just die then? Now, in John chapter 8, they want to kill him. The Bible says they took up stones to kill him. Now, if the purpose of Jesus coming down, and we know the ultimate purpose was, but if he needed to die at any time, why didn't he just die then? You want to kill me? Okay, I'll die. No, because it was not yet the right time. John 8. Turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And the Bible says there in verse... In verse 39, John chapter 10 and verse 39, the Bible says, Therefore they sought again to take him, but he what? He escaped out of their hands. So in John chapter 10, they try to kill him again, and Jesus escapes. Picture the scene. John 8, Jesus escapes. John 10, Jesus escapes. John 7, he says, my time has not yet come. Then we come to John chapter 12. Turn to John 12. And now we see a significant shift in John chapter 12. The Bible says here in John 12, and verse 26, 7, and 8. 
In John chapter 12 and verse 27, the Bible says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this cause came I into the world. Father, glorify thy, thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it. He comes to John chapter 12, and now there's a shift. Jesus is saying, time to glorify your name, Father. It's time to glorify. Verse 23, the Bible says, and Jesus answered them. Go back up a few verses. And Jesus answered them saying, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be what? So in John 7, Jesus says, my time has not yet what? In John chapter 8, when they want to kill him, he escapes. In John chapter 10, when they try and grab him again, he escapes. In John chapter 12, though, he says, the hour has come. Why? Did he just wake up one morning and say, now's a good day to die? No. Jesus understood, listen carefully, that his life was on a prophetic timeline. And there was a time appointed to be baptized. That's why in Mark chapter 1 verse 10, when Jesus was baptized, the Bible says that he said, the time is fulfilled. Jesus understood when he was baptized, he had fulfilled 69 weeks of prophecy. And he understood in John chapter 12 that he was about to fulfill the first three and a half years of the 70-week prophecy. He said, the hour has come. Jesus lived his life on a prophetic timeline. It wasn't just on a whim. You know, when I thought about this, it made me think about Judas. It made me think about Judas. Think. If Judas, Jesus' disciple, has seen him escape in John chapter 8. They come to get him, Jesus disappears. And then in John chapter 10, a few months later, he sees Jesus escape again. And he, and, he, and he hears, he may not have been a disciple then, that Jesus in Luke 4 escaped again. Three escapes. It's like Jesus was Houdini. They tried to kill him and he disappears. If you were Judas, if you were Judas, what would you have logically assumed Jesus would do in the Garden of Gethsemane when you bring the soldiers? He'd escape again. Therefore, if you were Judas, a businessman, what would it make logical sense to do? He's escaped three times, therefore he will escape four times. If he's going to keep on escaping, then maybe we should make some money off this great act. <laughs> Judas did not understand Bible prophecy. He was unaware that there was a timeline going on and he was having his own ideas as to when things should happen, Jesus was living according to, according to a prophetic timeline. Judas was unaware of it. Friends, it's important for you and I to study Bible prophecy and know the times in which we live. The theme for this conference, now is the time. 
Now is the best time to accept Jesus Christ into your life. It is never good to delay it. The time came in John chapter 12, if you're there in your Bible, for Jesus to uh, be, be crucified. And he says there in verse uh, 23, as we have just read, the hour has come to do what? To glorify your son. The hour has come to glorify your son, glorify your name. You see, at the cross, the character of Christ was seen in its fullest. At the cross was when the the, the glory of God was seen in its brightest. The patience of God was seen the clearest. The compassion of God was seen the clearest. Every attribute of God was seen in its clearest at the cross. The goodness of God was seen in its clearest form at the cross. You know when you take a picture, I just recently bought a new camera, and you take a picture and you get this big lens or whatever on it, and you're you're twisting and doing all these type of things to make it look like you know what you're doing. And as you do it, something's out of focus. And you have to just get that sweet spot where everything is close enough and in focus and you can see it clearly. The cross was that moment. When Jesus, when the character of God was in focus at its clearest point. No blurriness. It's not like these projectors when you switch them on and they're blurry and you've got to twist it a little bit and bam, you get it at its clearest point so you can see the picture. That was not the case. At the cross was when Jesus showed his character the clearest. I recently had a birthday. My birthday is July the 1st. It's a great birthday to have. If any of you would like to send me presents on my birthday, you're more than welcome. I'll give you all my address. (laughs) On my birthday, my wife bought me a present. I'm still not too old not to get presents. Amen. I have a bike that I recently, well, maybe two years ago, bought a bike, a road bike. I like to ride a bike. I should probably ride it more, but, you know, such is life. But I like to ride to work when I can, to the conference office. It's about eight miles from my house. So if I do the round trip, it's 16 miles, which is about, what, 24K, maybe? The problem is in the wintertime, in England, I think we lie at about 55, 56 degrees north on the equator. And so in the wintertime, it doesn't get bright or light in England until about 8 a.m. in the morning. In the evening time, it starts to get dark at about 3.45, 4 o'clock. And by 4.30, it's pitch dark. But in the office, if I do my full hours, I'm supposed to be there from 8.30 for worship until 5 o'clock. So in the winter time, if I ride my bike to work, I'm riding in the dark and I'm coming home in the dark. Now, if you don't have lights on your bike, it's not a very wise thing to do, even though I have done it a few times riding on the pavement, not the road. Now, my wife bought me this set of um, lights for my bike. Really, really small ones, but extremely bright. Now, when I first got these lights, I was really happy I got these new lights for my bike, and I put the the batteries in, and I was in the the office, in the study, and I put them on, and I was shining them around the room, but it was broad daylight. But I could still see the beam quite strong on the wall. It was a good light. It was supposed to have 100 or 150 meters uh, visibility or something like that. Now, it was quite bright in the house. But when sun set, 
And I said to my wife, I'm going to go out for a bike ride. And I put my light on the front of the bike, put the one on the back. And I go around, r- r- ride around the neighborhood that we live in. That light just beamed all the way into the distance. And when I was cycling down a road where there was houses at the other end of the road, I almost felt bad and I had to kind of try and adjust the tilt of my light because it was shining straight into people's living room, just boom. (laughs) Then I had this mode where it would flash and it's just like boom, 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 like flashing light straight into someone's living room as I'm riding my bike along. The thing is, it was a bright light, but I only saw the brightness in its clarity in the darkness. See, at the cross, the time when Jesus came to die, the time when he said, glorify your name. At that time, the character of Christ was seen in its clearest. Why? Because at the cross, we are told that Satan assembled every single evil angel was there at the cross. He summoned them all. There's nowhere else you can be at this time. You must be at the cross. Every single demonic force was there at the cross. We are told never was a criminal treated as inhumanely as Jesus. And there as he's dying on the cross with all of Satan's evil angels there. In the midst of all of that, the character of God shone the brightest. In the midst of that darkness... The character of Christ shone. You know, some of the greatest stories of humanity that we have today, when you're reading the news or you're reading through history, the greatest stories of humanity are when, in the midst of terrible suffering, someone does something great. When against the odds, in the middle of a war or a destitute area, somebody does something gracious and loving in spite of everyone around them. We read stories about World War II, about how where everyone was, you know, killing the Jews. Someone saved them. And it's like, wow. It stands bright amidst the darkness. This year is the 100th anniversary. You may have read of a story in World War I of when the soldiers on December the 25th, 1914, they started singing in their trenches at night, silent night, holy night. And as the English soldiers on one side were singing Silent Night, Holy Night, their German counterparts on the other side started to sing Silent Night, Holy Night. And then all across the line, going through Belgium and France, soldiers got out their trenches in the middle of the night, men who were shooting each other before, and they came together in no man's land. And they were exchanging food, cigarettes, chocolate, whatever. They put down some clothes, and, they, and the ball came from nowhere, and they started to play football. The barbers, the people who cut hair, were starting to cut hair. And, and it was just this amazing scene that took place on Christmas Day, 1914. History accounts that all those soldiers involved in that, the, the officers couldn't punish the people involved because there were so many. There were so many. History records that all the men, most of the men, sorry, most of the men involved in what was called fraternization with the enemy... They all had to be moved off the line to a different part of the line because after that experience, they couldn't shoot their friends anymore. Letters would go between trenches. The Germans sent a letter to the Allied trenches saying, "Um, our officer is going to come at 2 p.m. We are going to have to fire at you at 2 p.m., so duck down. 
At 5 p.m., let's meet again and exchange some drinks and, and food. And it's an amazing story, the first winter of World War I, how people put aside the war and fellowship together. Light amidst the darkness. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, it was light amidst the darkness all around. You know, there's, I want to share with you three stories. On the day that Jesus died, let me ask you a question. How many followers did he have on the day he died? As Jesus surveyed the vast crowd gathered at his death, the jeering, the mocking crowd, how many of them were there as his followers? Now we know just a few days previous, they had all been saying, Hail, Hosanna, Jesus King, Jesus King. But now a few days after, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, in front of the whole universe, there's no one really there to support him. One of his disciples has denied him. One of his disciples has betrayed him. The other ten have fled away. The crowds are not there anymore. And as Jesus is dying on the cross, it was a lonely and a miserable death. But on the day that he died, I want to share with you three experiences that we read in the Bible. And I would say this, three wise men. That when they saw Jesus at the time of his death, <coughs> excuse me, it made an impact on them. <clears throat> the first man, history tells us, was called Longinus. Longinus. L-O-N-G-I-N-U-S. The first man, history tells us, was called Longinus. He would have had command over about 65 men. He would have woken up that morning. He was a tough man. He was a hard man. To be involved in his job in Palestine or modern-day Israel, you had to be strong. In Palestine, it was considered the greatest show of patriotism if you killed a Roman officer. So all day long they had to be on their guard watching who was there. He would have been a violent, he would have been a strong man leading violent and strong men in a violent and strong and, and disrupted country. He served under a, a mean and a cold heartless man called Pilate and this would have rubbed off on him. That morning when he woke up he was given his orders for the day, take three men to be crucified. He would have thought not much of it. He had done that many times. And the men that he commanded would have known the routine probably inside out. He would have them divided up. So many men, maybe 10 or 15, you watch this prisoner. 10 or 15, you watch this prisoner. 10 or 15, you watch this prisoner. And he would have kind of overseen all of it. And that each one would have got their prisoner in line. And they would have slowly walked from the judgment hall down to Calvary. He would have kept an eye on the crowd, watching in case anyone tries to come and, and, and do an escape for one of the prisoners. And as they make their way down there to Calvary, the procession would move along. And no doubt, as the leader of the procession, he would not have had to speak very much. His men knew what to do. 
They had done this before. It was routine. And as they get there to Calvary, they lay the crosses on the ground and they put the, 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 the men on the cross, and he would have seen his men, they would have had routines. I used to work in a psychiatric hospital, and there were certain routines that they would teach us, that if one of the patients who was mentally disturbed, if they would kick off, or if they would, you know, act out of character. There were certain holds that they would teach you to grab the arm this way and twist it this way and neutralize the action. No doubt the Roman soldiers had similar things that they would know. Okay, you grab this arm, twist it this way. You grab this one. You knee him in the chest. You grab his head. You, and, and bam, before they know it, the, the thieves will be down on the cross. And he would have been watching all this take place, knowing his men, these almost like martial art, military maneuvers, get the men down. And then he would have observed that one soldier. And they're standing around ready to pounce on the third criminal. And as they're ready to pounce on the third criminal, this one lays down. And as he lays down, he stretches out his arms. And Longinus has never in his life ever seen this before. And he's watching just dumbfounded as he lays down and holds out his arm. Never seen this before. It takes them all off guard. And as the nails go into the hands, he hears the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And no doubt he himself was probably standing there listening to the words, Father, forgive them. And he's probably thinking, for they know not what they do. And he's probably going through his mind, I know exactly what I'm doing. Think about it. I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm good at my job. Bang, bang, bang. Yep, good. That's not me. I don't know who he's talking about, but it's not me. He would have known exactly what he was doing. He was well versed in what he was doing. And, and, and as they lift up the cross, the look of pain on the other thieves' are, uh, faces, and as they lift up the cross, there's a serene look on Jesus' face. And I can just imagine as the Roman soldiers, the last opportunity that they would have to cause pain to, to anyone on a crucifixion was when they put the cross in the ground. And I can just imagine, that's the last time they have to, you know, after that they die. That's the last time that they can aid in their pain. And no doubt those Roman soldiers, they were well versed in how they could lift it and slam it down with force. And as they slam that cross down with force, and as the holes widen on the hands and the feet, as it stretches the skin, he hears no sigh of agony or pain or frustration or anger. The face was peaceful and calm. Only a prayer comes from the lips of Jesus. You see, it's doubtful that Longinus had ever heard the words, as I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. But no doubt at that moment, as Jesus was lifted up, he could feel somehow his heart being drawn towards this man there in front of him. He had stood in Pilate's judgment hall. He had watched many criminals come and die, but he had never seen someone like this one standing there amidst everything from the trial to the crucifixion. He had never seen any of this. And then he hears the cry. Then he hears the cry. It is finished. Father, into your hands I give 
I commend my spirit. And in Luke chapter 15, if you turn there in your Bible, sorry, no, Mark chapter 15. If you turn in the Bible to the book of Mark chapter 15, we have here the account of uh, the centurion. The Roman centurion. And in Mark chapter 15 and verse 39, the Bible said, <coughs> excuse me, it says, and when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out, he gave up the ghost. He said, truly, this man was the what? Son of God. Don't, don't read over that as it's just something. Truly, this man was the Son of God. I dare any theologian or Bible scholar to more aptly pronounce who Jesus was at that time in history, but the Roman centurion who says, truly this man was the son of God. Now think about this. He has just nailed Jesus to the cross, and now he says he's the son of God. This is our first man. Person number one who testifies to the divinity of Christ on the day he was crucified was not his disciples. It was not his followers. It was not someone who has been healed of leprosy or cured from blindness. No, it's a Roman centurion who says, truly, this is the Son of God. The next person that we're going to look at is more used to being scrutinized than the Roman centurion. For we don't spend too much time on the Roman centurion generally in Christendom. The next person was the youngest one of them all. He had grown up in church. Many of you can relate to that. He had grown up going to the synagogue. He had grown up enjoying life, but he was not really committed. He is what we would call today a badventist. You know what I'm talking about. It's not so much that he went headlong into sin intentionally. The reality is not many people do. He had kind of drifted that way. He chose the wrong associates. Maybe because what they did looked so daring and fun and risky, he chose to be associated with them. One thing led to another, which led to another, and soon the strong arm of the Roman law was gripped on his shoulders and pulled him away to prison. But the Book of Desire of Ages says that there was another reason why he led that way. Not just he chose the wrong associates. Listen carefully. We're also told, we're also told that the religious leaders of his day had pushed him away from Jesus. The religious leaders had pushed him away from Jesus. The very people who should have drawn him toward Jesus had pushed him away from Jesus. Now this, anyone here in religious leadership circles and any one of you who professed Jesus Christ are a leader to somebody. The very people to draw him to Jesus had pushed him away. Never negate and minimize the effect of the influence you have on other people. They had pushed him away. The priests, the rulers, they had pushed him away. Maybe for you. God forbid. Maybe it was your parents who turned you off Christianity. Maybe your very parents who profess Christ and who serve as role models in the church 
have been the ones who have pushed you away from Jesus and anything you want to do with anything associated with religion. Maybe it's the pastor. God forbid. Maybe it's the elder who has pushed you away from religion. The Adventist church is littered with stories of people in such posts that have driven people away. I could tell you story after story just from my local church of things that older folks would say to younger folks that would drive them to the door. Maybe it's your friends in church or Adventist school that have driven you away from Christ. Maybe it's your Adventist friends that were the first ones who gave you a drink or took you to a club. Adventist friends driving other Adventists away from Jesus. Now this thief was sentenced to die. And on the day that he died, he went up there and carried his cross to Calvary. As he's carrying his cross to Calvary, he gets up there, and I'm sure maybe he hasn't thought much about Jesus yet, but as he gets up there, maybe he had, maybe he hadn't. And as soon as he gets up there, I can picture, they do the military maneuvers on him. Knee hits him in the chest, soldier on one arm, soldier on another arm, soldier on his leg, one grabbing his hair and slamming it down on the cross. And as they do so, as they do so, He's crying out all types of obscenities, calling down the judgment of whoever God there may be on these Roman soldiers, nail in the hand, nail in the hand, cross up, slammed into the ground. And as he there, and I'm just for the sake of my story saying he was the first one up, and as he's there on the cross looking down, he then sees Jesus on his cross laying out his hands, as I just said, and saying the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And maybe at that moment, his mind races back to a little boy on his mother's knee, and she's telling him the stories about Messiah will come. And his mind races back. Maybe at that moment, as he's on the cross, his mind races back to synagogue. His mind races back to that youth conference he went to. His mind races back to the week of prayer that he went to, and he remembers all the sermons... And he remembers all the appeals that he didn't go down for. And as he's there on the cross, it all comes back to him in his mind. And he's looking out on the crowd and he can see the people making fun. He can see the people mocking. And he can see there his own mother and father, tears sweeping down their faces, hearts broken. And he hears the other thief. And it becomes too much and he says, stop, stop. We deserve this, but this man has done nothing. Leave him alone. And he turns to Jesus and he says, he turns to Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You see, a light was shining through his mind. And Jesus turns back and responds. And he says words that will forever be memorable. He says, truly I say to you today, at this time, when I am nearly dead, when it appears my kingdom has been shattered and crumbled into ruin, when my own nation have rejected me, when my own disciples have left me, 
when it seems like all hope is lost and there is no such thing as a kingdom, he says, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. This thief died. The experience of seeing Jesus on the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus, when the glorification of the sun was at its brightest, caused him to say, take me to heaven. The experience of seeing Jesus die caused the pagan Roman soldier to say, truly, this is the Son of God. The experience of seeing that moment, the time in history when God glorified the Son the most, made the thief, a backslidden Jew, testify and say, please, remember me. The third person that we'll look at is less obvious. But he nonetheless played a vital part in the crucifixion of Jesus. He was not from Palestine. He was from the continent of Africa. He had two sons. One was called Rufus and one was called Alexander. They were both believers of Jesus. Though at this moment, he was not. As Jesus left his trial to go to Calvary, you know the story well. He had been scourged twice. Now, we read that so many times. We hear that preached so many times. We often don't take in what does that mean. It means he'd been whipped 78 times with a strand that has glass, hooks, metal, and every hit would rip off flesh of the skin. And then it goes again and again. And as now he is so weak with a crown of thorns on his head, they put the cross on Jesus, he falls down under it. No doubt the Roman soldiers had a bucket of water, they threw the bucket of water on him to try and revive him, put the cross on again, he falls down again. And then in the crowd, what happens, the, the, the book of Desire of Ages says is this, a man approaches from the crowd, and Ellen White says on page 742 that this man showed sympathy to Jesus. Now that's more than just a facial expression. He showed sympathy to Jesus and in the act of showing sympathy, the Roman soldiers grabbed him, put the cross on him. The cross goes on Simon of Cyrene. It goes on him. And I don't know whether he thought it was a blessing or a curse at the time. Maybe he thought, well, I should have kept my mouth shut. And as he is there staggering under the cross, and as Jesus is staggering next to him, as he hears the crowd mocking, as he hears the crowd making fun, as he hears the crowd making jokes, and he's staggering, feeling the wood pressing on his back as he's there going to Calvary. He was conscripted. What word did I say? Conscripted into service. Now, don't miss this point. This applies to more of us here than we may think. He was conscripted into service. SDA Bible commentary, Ellen White Common, says these words, his sympathy was deeply stirred in favor of Jesus. And the events of Calvary and the words uttered by the Savior caused him to acknowledge he was the Son of God. See, Simon did not hear any complaints from Jesus. He only heard a prayer. His heart 
was broken. And I can imagine Simon, after he's dropped the cross off at Calvary, he steps back and stands in the crowd, and he watches the nails go in, he watches the cross go up, and he stands and watches the crowd, and everyone's making fun of Jesus, mocking him. And as he stands there in the midst of the crowd, slowly, I believe, the impression of the Holy Spirit came upon his heart, and we're told he gave his life to the Lord. But some of us today here at AOY, we come in contact with Jesus just the same way that Simon came in contact with Jesus. Simon didn't choose to serve his Lord. He was forced to serve the Lord and later was converted. Some of you here may resent the fact that your parents made you come to AOY. I didn't even want to go. I want to stay at home. My mum made me go. She paid for me and said, you're going. Off you go. Or she's come. So I can't even do what I want to do because my mum's here too. And she drugged me along as well. And you're like Simon. You're conscripted into service. Some of you here wish every Sabbath morning you do not have to go to church. And you're always late for church because you don't want to get ready. And your parents say, get ready, uh, get ready, uh, get ready, I uh, don't want to. And they finally come to your room, take the clothes out the closet and say, wear this. Okay. You drag yourself to church, get there, open the door, sit at the back, pull out your phone and spend the next two hours on your phone. You don't want to be there. Conscripted into service. Some of you here wish, like I used to wish. I used to wish when I was a teenager. Why was I born into an Adventist home? I wish I was born into a normal home. Why did I have to be born into an Adventist home? Some of you wish you never even grew up in an Adventist home. And it was forced on you. Some of you don't want to do what's right just because you're told to do it. You know what I'm talking about? That your personal pride, I want to make the decision. Therefore, because I didn't make the decision, I won't do it. It's a foolish mindset to have. Sometimes we fight the right just because someone told us it was right. But either way it may happen, and I pray that it may happen to you if you are a Simon, that as you behold the Christ on the cross, your heart will be changed to want to give your life to Jesus. Some people willingly choose to follow. Some of us are like Simon. And it seems like in our early years, we did not have a choice. So be it. That's what the Lord saw fit for us or for you. And Simon, though, you know it's interesting, Simon. We are never told he preached at Pentecost. We are never told Simon traveled to the ends of the earth. We are never told anything about Simon after this point. But we know one thing. He did one of the most important things there ever was. He carried the cross of Jesus Christ. He carried Jesus' cross. Now, each one of these three men 
illustrates us in different ways. Maybe you are a leader like the Roman centurion. You are successful, but you have not given your heart fully to Jesus. Maybe you have been led astray by bad associates like the thief on the cross. And maybe you've been turned away by religious leaders like the thief on the cross. And maybe you have been forced to serve Jesus like Simon of Cyrene. But over all of them, when they saw the cross in its beauty, they gave their lives to him. You see, each one of these three men illustrates three different steps, I believe, in conversion that we must go through. Each one illustrates a step. You see, we have to understand that we crucified Jesus Christ and put him to open shame like the Roman centurion. We have to understand that we should die on the cross like the thief did, saying, I am crucified with Christ. And we have to come to the point where we accept the work Jesus has for us, taking up our cross and living for Jesus. When we see the sacrifice of Jesus, on the day that Jesus died, Ellen White says, only three men testified he was the Son of God. Roman centurion, thief on the cross, and Simon of Cyrene. Only three men. And each one of these three men are so interesting in their experience because they illustrate what we go through. But they also illustrate that when we see Jesus on the cross, at the time when his character was glorified the most, the impact it should have on us. This morning, I want to appeal to you. Maybe you are in one of those stages. Maybe you have realized that it's your sins that nailed Jesus to the cross. Are you sensing a need this morning to die to self and crucify self on the cross? Or are you realizing that you need to accept the work that Jesus has for you today? Which one of those three categories do you have? We have a work that Jesus calls us to do. You know, sometimes we want to have a glorious work. We want to be like Simon. We want to take the work of Jesus, but we want to tell God what work we want to do. Randy Skeet made a powerful appeal last night. Give a year of your life to service. Yeah, I'll give a year of my life to service. But Lord, you know, I, I want to do this and this and this, but definitely not that. Mm-mm. When you agree to give your life to service to Jesus, it can be anything. Do you think Simon carrying an ugly cross? You know, sometimes we have our idea, I, I want to do that, that work for Jesus, but I want to do a work for Jesus where other people see me. Otherwise, what's the point? It's kind of like people that go and buy designer clothes. You know the type that go and buy designer clothes? And they always wear them in such a way that you can always see the label. And the reasoning in their minds is, what's the point in, design, in buying a designer label if people can't see the label? Therefore, they have to see the label if I buy designer clothes. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you have done it this morning when you got dressed. Well, like, I want to serve Jesus, but if people don't see me, what's the point? What's the point? John. What did John want to do? What did he say to Jesus? What did he want to do? Where in God's kingdom did John want to be? John is a fascinating character. John wanted to be the top. His mother had the audacity to say, put one on your right hand and one on the left hand. I want my sons to be at the top. Many of us are driven on by parents that want the same for us. I want my son at the top. 
when Jesus died, after the first three, four, five chapters of the book of Acts, you don't read about John. While Paul's traveling around Asia preaching the gospel, while Peter's in Rome, while Thomas is in India preaching the gospel, where's John? Where's John, the one who wanted to be at the top? Where was he? He's a caretaker for Jesus' mom. Looking after Jesus' mom till the day she died. I don't know about you, but caretaking, looking after old people, is not in the world's eye seen as a great job to have. He looked after Jesus' mom till the day she died. And he wanted to be the top. As Jesus was dying on the cross, he looked at John and he knew exactly what John needed. And it's probably that Jesus understood that John needed more character development to iron out the son of thunder. So he said, John, mother, mother, John. He knew his mom would sort John out. He knew his mother still needed to train and mold the character of John. And so he commissioned John to live with his mother till the day she died. To prepare him to then go to the Isle of Patmos later in his late years of life. Some of us may be like John. We want to serve at the top. And Jesus may say, I just need you to serve me. And you're going to go and look after an old person here. Or you're going to go and do this there. We can't tell Jesus what our service to him needs to be. We can only say, Lord, let me serve. How many of you this morning, as we come to a close, how many of you this morning want to say, Lord, Like the Roman centurion, you recognize this morning that it's your sins that have nailed Jesus to the cross. You nailed him to the cross. You drove the spikes through his hands. This morning, if you want to say to the Lord, Lord, I acknowledge, I recognize that it's my sin that you died for. And I want to thank you for that as well. If that is your desire this morning, I want to ask for you to stand at this time. My second appeal, I have three. My second appeal is this. If you want to say, And you realize you killed Jesus. You killed him. You know when you realize that you killed something? Many of us here probably have never killed anything apart from a spider or a fly. But to actually kill something, it's vivid. It's real. When you see death. Sometimes I think if we had the sanctuary service back and we had to kill lambs, we would love sin a lot less. But you realize you killed Jesus. But maybe in your relationship with the Lord, you struggle against yourself. And in the quietness of this moment, there is something that the Lord is touching on your heart. Some aspect of yourself that is not surrendered, that you have not yet crucified. 
You want to surrender that to God? Some addiction, some secret sin that you want to surrender. And in the quietness of this moment, let the Holy Spirit convict you to surrender that very thing to God. And the third part of this appeal is Simon of Cyrene. That this morning, as you observe what Christ has done for you, this morning, as you look at the sacrifice Jesus has made for you, you want to say this morning, Lord, I've been running for so long, but I want to take up my cross and I want to work for you. And I'm willing to take any work. I want to have the attitude of John. That whether it's preaching like Paul or looking after the mother of Jesus like John, I'll do anything for my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I know yesterday there was an appeal that was made for those that wanted to give one year of your life for service. Is there someone this morning that before we go to our workshop time, before the day races on, the Holy Spirit is convicting you to give your life to service to the Lord? Full-time service to the Lord. Is there someone this morning that you're being convicted to take up your cross like Simon and work for your master? Before we close with prayer, I would like to invite that person, that young man, that young lady, that older man or older lady, for I recognize we're not all under the age of 30 here. And you want to say that I want to work for my master? I'd like to invite you to come forward before we close with prayer. Amen. Amen. That you want to work for the master. Amen. God bless you. Do you want to take up your cross and serve him? Be what it may. Amen. Come forward. The best time to follow Jesus and commit to him is always the earliest time. It's always the earliest time. Is there someone else that wants to come forward this morning and in an act of commitment to God, to the universe, and in accountability to the men and women who stand and watch you, that you want to say to God, I want to commit my life to service wherever the Lord may lead me. God bless you. Come forward. forward. The sacrifice of Christ. Three men made an impact on three very unlikely men three very unlikely men is there anyone else that wants to make that commitment to service to sacrifice to take up your cross and give your heart in service to the lord before we close with a word of prayer is there anyone else this morning If while I'm praying you want to come forward, then amen, then please do. Let's bow our heads as we close with prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you.
for your goodness and your mercy to us. We thank you, Lord, that at the right time, not a day before, not a day too late, at the right time, you died. We thank you, Lord, that at that time, you glorified your name, your character, like it had never been seen before. We thank you, Lord, that in the midst of this, Three men testified to who you were. And Lord, in their experience, we see ourselves so many times. I pray this morning, Lord, for each person who has come forward here. That is saying like Simon that they want to dedicate themselves in service to you. Lord, I pray that you may impress, impress upon them whatever that may be. Whether it's to go somewhere far away or whether it's just to go next door or the neighboring city or somewhere humble and unseen grant them lord a heart of service in reciprocation for what you have done for us lord we pray and we ask for these blessings in the name of jesus amen this media was brought to you by audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.